Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. So welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. I'm Cal Raustiala. I'll be your host today, and I'm really pleased to have with us as our special guest, uh, Professor of International Maritime Law, James Kraska at the Naval War College. And I've invited James on the podcast to talk about the recent incident between Russian and Ukrainian vessels and to give us some perspective on how to understand the legalities behind what occurred. So, uh, Professor Kraska, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I wondered if you could just kind of describe for us, first of all, what happened and, and tell us a little bit about the strait and, you know, just kind of paint the picture of what occurred between these two naval uh, or between these two vessels, I should say. Thank you very much, Cal. Uh, I, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk to you today about this incident that occurred on November 25th. So on that day, there were three vessels that were part of the Ukrainian Navy. Uh, two were small artillery patrol craft, and then one was a tugboat. And there's a bit of a disagreement on the facts uh, Ukraine says that this incident occurred outside of the territorial waters of Ukraine, although in some respects it shouldn't matter. Russia says that it occurred inside the territorial waters of Ukraine, and, of, and uh, this is Crimean occupied, Russian-occupied Crimea, part of Ukraine, and that uh, the the vessels did not comply with uh, pilotage, mandatory pilotage requirements for transit through the adjacent Kerch Strait. So the Kerch Strait separates uh, Crimea from uh, from Russia, and and since. Crimea has been occupied by Russia since 2014. It's under Russian administration pursuant to a vote that was conducted uh, by the majority uh, Russian-speaking government and people in Crimea, although it's still lawfully part of Ukraine. The Kerch Strait separates these two areas, and it's a narrow body of water that feeds from the Black Sea into the Sea of Azov. And there's plenty of legal disagreement to go around on the status of the straits, uh, the legal regime that applies. And so there, there are a lot of layers of this onion that you can peel back. And have there been previous uh, incidents or episodes involving these two navies since the Russian occupation? Or is this the first? Well, this is... The first in this area, this is the, the first in contemporary times. There have been legal disagreements, however, over the Kerch Strait. And in fact, Ukraine has filed a case with the, uh, with under ar arbitration uh, under Annex 7 of the Law of the Sea Convention. And the registry for that case is the Permanent Court of Arbitration. And the case concerns a bridge which has been constructed and is complete now. It was finished in July of 2018. And this bridge stretches from the Russian side to uh, uh, Crimean, uh, Russian-occupied Crimea, Ukraine. And the bridge is, uh, presents a legal issue because it impedes the type of ships 
the height or, or the draft the, of ships that can go through the strait. And so about one third of Ukrainian cargo ships are now locked in the Sea of Azov because they cannot uh, go underneath this bridge. And so that raises a question about impediment to freedom of navigation, regardless of what the status of the waterway is. So the waterway could be internal historic waters of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the water could also present itself as a territorial sea in which innocent passage applies, or it could be considered a strait used for international navigation in which the, the navigational re regime of transit passage applies. And there have been a number of incidents between Russian authorities and Ukrainian merchant ships uh, that have been harassed or impeded, as well as incidents between Ukrainian fishing vessels and Russian authorities uh, in the Sea of Azov and in the approaches to the Strait of the Kerch Strait. And just to clarify, the only two nations uh, that have access to the Sea of Azov uh, are Russia and Ukraine. Is that correct? Well, that's a point of disagreement. That would be correct if the Sea of Azov is indeed historic internal waters, which is what Ukraine and Russia have previously claimed in a pronouncement. But it's not solely up to them. Under customary international law, there's a three-part test for one or more states to claim historic internal waters. And that would be that the state or states have to have governed the area of the water space. They have to have done so for an extended period of time because this is customary international law. And then third, that they have to have the acquiescence or the acceptance of other states, especially nearby states. And so it's unclear to me whether they would be able to meet that test. And, and the presumption is always against the states that are, that are making that sort of claim. And does their, that's very helpful, does their stipulation or their agreement that it is in fact historic internal waters predate the conflict between Ukraine and Russia? It does. Yeah. So they agreed in the early 2000s that that would be the status. And nobody, no, no other country seemed to issue a demarche. So that augurs in favor of it being considered uh, yeah, historic internal waters. But even though the Sea of Azov is small, it's not by, by the standards of a sea, it's not an insignificant body of water. Um, it's, uh, you know, 200 kilometers wide by, uh, by at its longest stretch, probably 300 kilometers long. So it's on the order of maybe half the size of one of the Great Lakes. I want to drill down on what exactly occurred and then pivot to how you have interpreted the proper legal framework. But just to put this in context, to go back to the bridge itself that you mentioned, which I know is important to the story, is it fair to say that the building of the bridge by Russia is part of Russia's general attempt to seize Crimea permanently and also to, uh, to I don't want to say cripple Ukraine's ability to operate through that strait, but, but it was deliberate? Uh, deliberately intended to make it difficult? Is that, uh, is that your view? 
I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, the the bridge is part of the campaign to sort to 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 make permanent the the absorption of Crimea back into Russia, which is where it actually where it came from. So Russia has uh, a a a historic argument and a and a cultural uh, tie, indeed a historic dominance over Crimea. But of course, the way that they uh, went about their their sort of reabsorption of Crimea uh, was unlawful under the UN Charter system and international law generally, and that's why it is under under sanctions since 2014. So let's uh, turn to what to what. I, sorry, did you yeah, want to? Well, I was just going to say that for the second part of me, but for the second part of what you were saying, um, it's not only absorbing Crimea and making it a a permanent part of Russia. The bridge does serve that purpose. It also very much weakens the economy in in Western Ukraine on the Sea of Azov, where where that part of the country that's very near uh, an area controlled by Russian-backed separatists uh, that are are positioned in Donetsk, uh, that area is dependent upon maritime trade through two major ports, Mirapol and Berdyansk. And now those ports have suffered uh, a huge uh, fall off in traffic. And, and that has been going on since, uh, since 2014. And so that weakens the economy and, uh, and just the, uh, the autonomy. And it's sort of part of, of the, the idea of the gray zone conflict, which is to, um, to frustrate and weaken uh, your the, you know, the, the opposing country. Right, right. So let's turn to what actually occurred in this incident. So can you describe exactly what transpired and, and then we'll, we'll talk a little more about how to understand and interpret it? Sure. There's a bit of disagreement on the precise facts, but what we know is that somewhere along the approaches to the Kerch Strait, Ukraine says in international waters, Russia says in the territorial sea, and the other possibility is that it could have occurred in uh, the Ukrainian territorial sea. So even if Russia is correct, it might be, it appears that it occurred on the Crimean side of the Kerch Strait. And so if that is the case, it would have been in Ukrainian territorial sea, which would have been an, an even more egregious violation. Uh, but for whatever, uh, wherever it, it occurred, and it, and uh, what, what, what happened is that these three vessels of the Ukrainian Navy made it known that they intended to transit the Kerch Strait, and Russia responded that they were under an obligation to take on a marine pilot. And so pilotage is, uh, is something that is used in waterways that pose a, a special hazard to navigation, particularly narrow waterways. This particular waterway has uh, four or five bends uh, in, the, in the channel. The channel is all on the Ukrainian side, uh, so it's a very narrow channel, and by benefit of geography, uh, the Ukraine or the Crimean side is the best side to transit. And Russia has imposed this pilotage without... Uh, any any sort of um, 
authority from the International Maritime Organization or, uh, or even from its neighboring state. And so the, the Ukrainian vessels uh, did not comply and there's disagreement on how they responded or whether they responded. And the Russians warned that they would shoot. The Ukrainian vessels uh, continued to, uh, in their view, exercise their right of navigation, either innocent passage or transit passage uh, through the strait. And as a result, there were shots uh, that were uh, fired and several Ukrainian sailors were injured, although apparently not seriously, but it resulted in all three vessels being arrested, as well as the individuals on board, and uh, taken into Kerch, and, uh, and they are apparently still detained by Russian authorities. This raises so many interesting questions, but just quickly, how I'm trying to put this in context in terms of uh, previous incidents, if there are any, where two major navies exchanged shots in the last uh, few decades, uh, or even just the last decade. How common is this? Well, it's not common, uh, although there are incidents. Uh, there are there are incidents in. Uh, in the, the Strait of Hormuz, for example. So in this case, with Ukraine and Russia, it's not clear that shots were traded, but just that uh, the Russians shot at the Ukrainians. I see, I see. And stood down. Um, there's right now, off the coast of Yemen and in the Red Sea, Houthi rebels have actually used even greater force, and they've, they've uh, set oil tankers afire. They... Uh, they attacked a Saudi frigate. They attacked the USS Ponce, a U.S. warship. Uh, and in that case, the United States launched cruise missiles against those sites. Um, so there have been a number of incidents, I guess, recently. Uh, there's a, a vessel, a high-speed vessel that the United States uh, transferred to Saudi Arabia, or excuse me, to the United Arab Emirates that was struck by Houthi rebels um, in the... Uh, in the Red Sea. So it occurs on occasion, but it's, it's, uh, you know, before that, as far as a major naval conflict, you'd have to go back to the Falklands in the 1980s or the, uh, what was called Operation Praying Mantis that resulted in the oil platforms case between the United States mm -hmm. and Iran. And were the Ukrainian vessels, to your knowledge, uh, transiting in a, was it equivalent to a freedom of navigation operation or were they legitimately getting somewhere they needed to go? Well, I would say the two are, are not. Um, Fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. So, so, I mean, it, they don't have to have a specific reason why they want to transit the strait. They want to go from one part of their country to another part of their country. Um, and it's, it's unclear whether they were doing it as a test. They weren't incredibly prepared, and it's unlikely, if that's the case, it's unlikely you'd probably send a tugboat if you were going to do that um, anyway. Mm -hmm. So it appears that they were making sort of a routine uh, transit, and then they were seized by the Russian S, uh, FSB, the Border Patrol. Got it. So... Let's uh, turn to how to understand this incident. So implicit in what you were saying a moment ago, and you compared to, let's say, the situation in Yemen, 
Uh, that's a situation of, of armed conflict of various kinds. Uh, there's obviously debate about how to characterize that as well. Uh, but what, um, what happened here is, is in a different context. I mean, there is certainly an ongoing uh, conflict, one could say, uh, continuing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, though it's, it's, you characterize it as gray zone, and I think that's probably a fair uh, description. So what, what law do you see as applying best here? Is this a standard law of the sea situation? Is this a maritime uh, dispute? Is it naval warfare? How would you best describe it? So there's, so I think reasonable people can differ, and my Egil talk post brought out some of the other perspectives, and I think that those are credible perspectives. Uh, my view is that the Ukraine and Russia are involved in an international armed conflict uh, and have been since uh, 2014, and that in that case, that lex specialis regime trumps the law of the sea, uh, mutatis mutandis, as far as the law of the sea applies in this situation. So if this were simply a, uh, a normal peacetime situation, then clearly there's been a violation of the right of freedom of navigation through the strait. And that then raises the issue of what was the character, the legal character of those waters, as, we, as we've talked about. I believe that a, a better way to look at this, though, is uh, that there is, in fact, a international armed conflict going on and the law of naval warfare applies. And in that case, there's, no, there's nothing from a use in bellow standpoint that Russia did unlawfully during the engagement. Indeed, because uh, these two are, are belligerent parties to a conflict, Russia could uh, conduct status-based targeting, and it could have sank these vessels. It could have used uh, any force. Now, Russia would still have to comply with the other rules for the use of force, including uh, proportionality and principles of humanity and, and that sort of thing, which I think they did here. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, I want to be an apologist for Russia because their invasion and their occupation uh, well, the, the invasion was unlawful. The occupation is neither lawful nor unlawful. It's just a condition. But the invasion was unlawful. It was in violation of um, Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter of the United Nations. Furthermore, subsequent to this incident, Russia has announced that they are charging these 24 captured sailors uh, as common criminals, which doesn't recognize their their lawful and rightful status as prisoners of war, how they ought to be treated. Now it's a little ironic because if they were if they were considered prisoners of war, then they would be immune from any sort of acts on the battlefield or in the battle space in this case, including non-compliance with the Russian orders and all the rest. Um, and yet both Ukraine and Russia have stated publicly that there's not an international armed conflict, um, yet Ukraine has, has suggested, at least if the translations are, are reliable and they may not be, that, they, that the sailors ought to be let go and or that they are prisoners of war. 
Hmm. Interesting. So the Russians, since they're not treating them as POWs and just as criminals in this case, seem to be acting inconsistently with the paradigm you're laying out. What have the Russians done, if anything, that is consistent with the paradigm you've laid out? Well, the only thing they did that was consistent is, uh, is capture the ships and the individuals um, because they would be lawfully entitled to do so uh, anywhere outside of a neutral state's territorial sea. So regardless of whether this occurred on the high seas, in Ukraine's territorial sea, or in Russia's territorial sea, it was a lawful attack against enemy forces. So that so much is, is okay as far as it goes in use in Bello. Uh, the problem that this raises is that uh, there is a tendency for uh, for states that want to leverage the gray zone to weave in and out of peacetime and wartime paradigms or regimes. And in doing so, not only does it, does it dispirit the other side that is always on the defensive and unable to effectively respond, but then it, uh, it confuses the rest of the world too, so that you can't, um, you can't form an effective counter and the aggressor is always um, sort of always in control of the narrative and of the facts. Say a little more about when you use the phrase gray zone, what do you mean exactly? And, and how has Russia leveraged that in this particular incident? Sure. Well, the gray zone actually emerged from the Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force that was facing a encroachment of the Senkaku Islands by fleets of Chinese fishing vessels that are actually part of a, a organization, part of an organized maritime militia. And the, the fishing vessels are acting as individual, uh, in, as individual commercial vessels. And yet they're also a tool or lever for, the Chinese government, and they're supported by the China Coast Guard, uh, as well as the PLA Navy. And this is a hybrid sort of, uh, of coercion uh, that is short of a clearly articulated international armed conflict, but it's designed to, uh, to change the facts and make gains uh, in, in favor of the, of the force um, by using methods that are both uh, that are both criminal that are that are in a criminal law regime, as well as that suggest uh, the regime of of international armed conflict, and so it's it's some it's a problem in that it places the the state on the defense of unsure what is the most appropriate way to respond, especially with an interest when you're dealing with us with states like Russia and China that are very powerful and that are willing to use force, the the states on the defense want to de-escalate. And so it puts them at a permanent disadvantage. There's a view that there's nothing that, that the gray zone is sort of non-existent. That is that it that there you're either in law enforcement or you are in in uh, in in a law of armed conflict or humanitarian law situation. And I think that that's accurate. Uh, but, of course, it imposes a very uncomfortable political and legal decision by states that are affected by this hybrid 
uh, type of coercion or, or attack of how to deal with it. Well, that's really very interesting. Have you, are there other examples outside of the ones you just gave that you can point to where you've seen this dynamic play out? Sure. Uh, China in the South China Sea, uh, again, using hundreds of fishing vessels that are uh, under the orders eventually of the government. They're really state agents, but they're acting as individual fishing vessels. Uh, the actual invasion and even now the occupation of Crimea, as well as uh, the, the areas under uh, that are controlled by Russian-backed uh, insurgents in the Ukraine, uh, were done by forces that did not have appropriate insignia, that did not comply in that respect with the laws of armed conflict or the, or the Geneva Conventions. And so it raised uh, you know, questions about whether these, how you would deal with these. So this is the, the, the problem in the East China Sea and the South China Sea are the little blue men. The problem in Crimea and in the Ukraine are the little green men. Uh, who, who in fact do these aggressors work for? Are they just individual activists or are they agents of the state? I think in both cases they're agents of the state, but that's not a, that's not a very welcome conclusion because then you have to deal with those two very powerful states. Well, James, this has been a really fascinating conversation, and I hope in the future we can have you back on the podcast. But thank you so much for coming on, for talking with us about this, and uh, we look forward to learning more. Thank you, Cal. I look forward to it. Sure. Take care. Thank you.